Technology Works. My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm excited to be here this morning. I've heard a lot about you. Most of it is good, so that's really a good thing. Uh, no, all of it has been good. Alex has been a good friend to me. I'm new to this whole thing as well. Uh, we network with churches in Carroll Stream, so I bring you greetings, first of all, from our church uh, at, in Carroll Stream. We're called Village Church East. Uh, and so uh, Michael Fueling is there today. Alex is over in Bartlett. And I'm, I get to be with you for the very first time. I've been looking forward to this. And uh, I know you don't know me, but let me introduce myself first of all. I have four girls, which I hear is normal in this church. Four kids is like the rule. So if you haven't hit four yet, keep trying. You're almost there. And uh, then you have weddings. I haven't had any of those yet. All of my girls are, are awesome. I have a wonderful, beautiful wife. And uh, we have an adopted son. Actually, he's not adopted, but he hangs out with us a lot. That's Trent right there. Trent, raise your hand. Really. There's Trent. Yeah. And Rebecca's with us this morning. My other girls are all gone, uh, not, not able to be here, but, uh, but we are excited to be with you this morning. Th- this weekend is also a very special weekend. So before we get into the message this morning, I want to just acknowledge uh, our veterans. This is Veterans Day weekend. And so if you have served in any of the branches of the military, um, I would love to see you. So would you mind standing? Because I'd love to recognize you right now. Is there anyone here this morning? I wasn't sure. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. What, what branch did you serve in? Navy. Ah, the best one. <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate your service. Please be seated. How long were you in the Navy? <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Thank you for, for your service. And um, we, we benefit on the shoulders of strangers we have not met. Uh, and we are grateful for all of you. So thank you. I am continuing in the series that you are already in. That's one of the blessings that I get to uh, participate in with these pastors. We meet every, uh, every Tuesday now and uh, spend several hours digging into God's Word. And so we are in the series of 1 Peter, as you are as well. And we are about to enter into 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, this is a unique passage. I have a theory. This is why Alex bowed out today. Because this is possibly the hardest passage to preach out of the book of Peter. So he said, Craig, you take it. I'm going to go. And I have yet to find out if he's actually at Bartlett. He might actually be down south somewhere. I'm not sure. Um, but we get to, to, to tackle this together today. And I'm excited, I'm excited to do it. Uh, any of you like fishing? You like fishing? Like a lot of people do. I love fishing. Fishing is my Sabbath. If I can get out in the stream, I, I, I get to spend time with the fish, and when I catch the fish, I let them go. I know that's kind of weird, but I love fish too much to... I'll go to the store and eat them, but I won't like eat the ones that I catch. Salmon is an interesting fish. How many of you know the lifespan of a salmon? These are really unique animals. Salmon uh, have been introduced in the Great Lakes in about the, the 60s, is when they were introduced into the Great Lakes. They were brought in, uh, and it was made into a, a bit of a fishery that way, so it became more and more popular. You can imagine f- fishing salmon out of fresh water. They adapted very well, and so they grow to pretty big, pretty big sizes. They start in the stream, and then they, uh, they are born in the stream, and then they work their way down as they get bigger into the lake. And when they're in the lakes, they will grow to, uh, you know, massive sizes. Uh, they live about four, four to five years, and then they make their way back into the stream. 
And they find the exact place where they were born, where they came from, and there they spawn, and then they die. And, they, and if you've ever fished in the streams, you, you, you know it's a, it's a, it's a life-changing experience. Now, uh, I love fishing in the streams in, in the Great Lakes. Uh, the streams that come out of there. Uh, typically, I'll go up to Wisconsin, and, and uh, it's, I'll find a nice quiet spot, and I'll be fishing. You can see them swimming all around you. Uh, in the fall is usually when I go. Uh, that's when the salmon run is. Just, just got done with the salmon run, actually. They're swimming all around. Sometimes I'll bump into you. They're like these big whales freaking you out in the water. You're fishing in there. What's worse is you'll be really quiet. You'll find a nice quiet spot. And then they'll fly up out of the water right behind you. And it'll, you know, you'll fill your waders. It'll, it's kind of uh, an exciting experience to be in the water. There's a salmon uh, in Michigan. There's, there's a salmon ladder in Grand Rapids I love going down to. And you can see the salmon jumping up the salmon ladder, working their way back up to the place where they were born. These salmon will travel for miles and miles. And what always gets me is the water always gets high enough so they can find their way back into this stream they came from. However that happens, I have no idea. They find their way back in the stream and back to the place where they were originally born, and that's where they, they spawn and they die. Atlantic salmon and Pacific salmon are even more amazing. These salmon will travel up to 2,000 uh, miles in their, life, in their lifespan. They will sometimes travel 200 miles upstream just to find the place where they came from. And then they will do the same thing. They will spawn and they will, they will die. And the, 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 um, the, the travel, the journey is fraught with all kinds of dangers. And uh, you've seen this, uh, these pictures of the bears waiting for the buffet to start. Uh, and the salmon start coming up and they're grabbed by... And, and if they don't get grabbed by a bear, there's other dangers in the streams. And uh, sometimes they'll run into me. Oh, we missed the... There it is right there, yeah. It's fun, fun, fun. Salmon intrigue me because of their natural instinct to swim against the current as they aim for a specific destination in order to complete their mission. That reminds me, sometimes, of how I feel about living for Jesus. It reminds me about how God calls his followers to live in this world. Let me give it to you this way. Have you ever made a decision that went against culture? Have you ever had to say to your family or to say to those closest to you, we have heard that it was going to be this way in culture, we are going to do something completely different. And like a salmon, you put your fins on and you start going upstream while everybody else is going downstream. The effort to do that is sometimes, sometimes it's hard. It's like you feel like a salmon going against the culture that God has put you in. And, and what's more than that, God regularly calls us to make decisions that seem to go against the common flow of culture around us. Everybody else is going with the flow. And God says, you're not to do that. You're supposed to be swimming upstream. And when we do that, we find ourselves, well, I find myself, I don't know if I don't want to speak for you, but sometimes I find myself getting a little fatigued. Not like swimming maybe 200 or 600 miles upstream back to the place where it originally came from, but it feels like just this constant, constant pressure on my shoulders to look at God's Word and say, this is what God says to do, but this is what everybody else is doing. So as for me and my house, which I love, we sang that song, where, where are you? Uh, uh, 
Yes, I love that. As for me, that's like an old song, right? I love that song. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. To do that, doesn't it feel like you've got to go upstream against culture? I mean, and just to make that decision is one thing, but then you've got to explain it to everybody. Like, why, why is it that you go to church on Sunday and you don't put your kids in the sports games? Why is it that you don't sleep around like everybody else at work? This guy is a Greek god. Why don't you just go spend some time with him? Why is it that you share so much time with your family? Why is it that you tell your wife everything? Are you insane? Nobody does that. Over and over and over again, we're, we're, we are compelled to live like culture. And then it's on the television and you think to yourself, everybody thinks this way. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. In order to get on TV, you got to be pretty much whacked in the head just a little bit, all right? That's why they get on TV. There's a lot of people that think just like we do. The kingdom of God is bigger than we think that it is. And so there are a lot of salmon swimming with you, and sometimes you feel alone. I get it. I do too. And then you try and explain it to your kids and your, your people you work with, and it gets really tiring. Why can't I wear the clothes that everybody else wears? And then you tell your kids, because your body belongs to Jesus. <laughs> and they go, what? <laughs> Let me take you to 1 Corinthians 6, you know? We look at God's Word and we say, this is what God has for us. It may not be the culture. It may not be what comes natural to our instinct. That flow is going in one direction and everybody's following it. But God's mission for the church is to be a light in the dark, to be salt in a salt, tasteless world. And so we are to do a UE and swim upstream sometimes, and sometimes that gets a little bit tiring. But what I'm going to tell you this morning is that in our obedience, there is a promised power to help us succeed. There is power available in the pattern of living for Jesus Christ. And those people that are going one direction in the stream will never know that power. But God promises it to those salmon willing to live against culture, willing to do what God's counter-cultural pattern demands. Now, I'm assuming Alex has done a good job in kind of tracking along with First with Peter stuff. So you know, we, you've talked about subjection, right? You talked about living and, and winning by subjecting yourself to one another. It's the weirdest thing, right? Like salmon going upstream. It's weird, but it's a powerful truth of Scripture. That in subjection to those around us, God promises us victory. It's all the way through Peter so far. In 13 it says, Be subjected for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 15, this is the will of God, your subjection. Verse 21, for this to this subjection you have been called. But now, chapter 3, which is why Alex has abandoned you this morning, because in chapter 3, Peter takes one of the greatest examples in life to apply this attitude of subjection. And the greatest example he can think of is marriage, two of marriage. Marriage is the example that Peter picks to help us understand where the rubber meets the road. 
He picks, this is God's institution. Again, this is an, a countercultural idea, I know. Marriage is man's institution. <laughs> Don't buy that. Marriage is God's institution. In fact, the God's institutions that, that are paramount in our lives, uh, rule over the land, uh, a subjection in our marriage, and our relationship to God in a subjective way, those are all covered in the first two chapters of Genesis. So if you're wondering who came up with these institutions that Peter's talking about, blame God. And the first one he talks about in 1 Peter 3 is marriage. Because it's his institution. We do not get to define marriage. That is holy territory. You know this, you just had a wedding here yesterday. I've been to weddings where God's name is not even mentioned. That must break God's heart. This is God's institution, and it's for a specific purpose. That's why Peter chooses it to help us understand the power available for us when we choose to go countercultural, live countercultural in our marriage. It may go very much against our instinct and very much against our culture. But here's my question, ladies. Do you want to win your husbands or push them further away in rebellion? If you want to win them, this message is for you. Husbands, do you want to win your wives so that they, are, they, they can be respectful and responsive? Then this message is for you. Peter is about to connect this idea of subjection to marriage. And he starts out by helping us understand this is all one category by using one big word, likewise. In verse 1, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And in verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands. And these are the two chunks we're going to talk about today. He's already talked about subjection, and now he's going to say, Here's what it looks like in your marriage. Number 1, chapter 3. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And there's an exodus at the door. <laughs> That's countercultural, right? Have you heard that at a marriage, a marriage ceremony that you've been at recently? Maybe yesterday? It's, it's scary, right? Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, those are unbelievers, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So now you know why Alex is not here. That's rough, right? There's so much wrapped in this one word, likewise. Based on all we've parsed so far, be subject to one another, be subject to your masters, be subject to, to the authorities, be subject to the king, to the emperor, be subject to everyone. That's what we've covered so far. Peter says, I've got to make this real for you. Let's talk about your marriage. Be subject in your marriage. Likewise. This is where the rubber meets the road. Let me just ask you this. Who has more power? If you're married here this morning, who has more power to make your life miserable? Who has the most power in the world to make your life miserable? Your spouse, right? If you're married here this morning, who has the most power to influence your feelings? Your spouse. If you're married here this morning, who has the most power to make your life a living hell? Your spouse, right? We all know this is true because this is the most intimate relationship on the planet, where two become one. Peter's not trying to overly establish the authority of the, husband, of the, of the husbands here in this passage. 
He's trying to help wives win. He's trying to help wives understand how to unleash the power of God in their marriage. And ladies, it's not screaming until he listens to you. That's what culture leads you to, or that's what your instinct will say. If I speak louder, they'll hear me, like we're talking to our children, right? They're screaming at us, I'll scream louder at them. Eventually they'll hear what I have to say. doesn't work. Instinct doesn't always work. This power that you have, ladies, might be found in swimming against your culture and your natural instinct to demand your own way. Now, culture will say, you tell him what you want, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You tell him, and he'll give it to you. And that doesn't usually work. God's instructions are clear. Subjection or submission is even required in a marriage. So the idea is, ladies, how would you like to win your husband? How would you like to unleash the power of God to win your husband? Because if you can't do it, somebody can. And he's a lot more powerful than you are. Subjection even applies in marriage. Now, if you've already been married for more than a day, you'll know this already. You'll never win your husband with a rebellious heart. But you may win him through your godly conduct. And apparently, according to Peter, you may win him without saying a single word. Now, I have four girls. Actually, I have six females in my house. I have four girls that I love. I have a wonderful wife that is near and dear to my heart and a female dog. So I have six females in my house. And in my house, there's a lot of words. There's a lot of words. Peter is saying that a woman's greatest strength may not be exerted by what she says. It may be exerted by not even uttering a single word. Perhaps the greatest strength for a woman is simple, consistent living for Jesus in front of her Family. Now, you're sitting here probably influenced by culture going, no way. You don't know my husband. He, needs, he, couldn't, he couldn't cook toast if I didn't explain it to him. He couldn't, he couldn't boil water. He needs everything clearly explained or he couldn't even survive. And you may be right. The challenges we have is that our instinct tells us to go one way. The culture tells us to go one way. But the sin of culture is this. We have seen what culture has done, and culture has not only demanded we go in one direction with our marriage, draw a red line, don't ever forgive, all this other stuff they say, but when culture is finally turned upside down and you look at the underbelly, you realize culture is failing in their marriages. So why would we take advice from a failing culture? God says the way to win your husband is through godly, simple conduct. And the danger is that we see so many bad examples of marriage that we think to ourselves, well, marriage just doesn't work. And I'm here to tell you, marriage works when it's done God's way. Viewing the failures of culture, we reject God's institutions. That's a risk because of the way that people have mismanaged them. But the truth is this, church. God has designed the institution of marriage for the flourishing of mankind. He didn't create marriage to fail. He created it to be the best thing you've ever experienced. But unless you, you, you won't see this until you see the power of God exhibited in his pattern for living. So Peter goes on. Just to talk a little bit further 
He says in verse 3, Don't let your adorning be external, ladies, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. Now Peter handles directly culture. Women are driven to win men with their bodies. This comes natural. This is encouraged by culture. And if you don't believe it, you've been living under a rock. The, the, the way that a woman wins a, a man, we're told, is by dressing this up. Not this, but, you know, your, the, the body up. And the more you dress it up, or the, the more fit you look, or whatever it is, the more chance you have of winning a man. Uh, this picture was taken of Christy Brinkley when she was 63. Do you know Christy Brinkley? This is 63. This woman has dressed up, sold products. I mean, that's pretty good for 63, wouldn't you say? Christy Brinkley, on the outside, looks fabulous. Christy Brinkley has been divorced four times. Underneath that exterior is most likely a broken heart. And I don't know how many times she swung and missed and swung and missed beyond four marriages, but there's ultimately more relationships within those four swings that have left her racked on the rocks. And I w- if I had a chance to sit down with her, I'd say, Christy, listen, you know, do whatever you want. But there's a way to win. And it's not in by giving most of your attention to the externals. It's by what lies in the heart. God has created a beauty within you that you apparently have trouble tapping into. And I would say to the ladies in my life, the ones I live with and All those around me, your greatest asset is not what you do with the externals. It's what you can do with the internals. Submitted to Jesus Christ, there's no more beauty in a woman than that. God says women win with their inner beauty. And let me just say this too. Women, you can be beautiful without having a man. You know that, right? This is just in the context of marriage. This passage is in the context of, here's how you have a happy relationship with somebody that is completely opposite from you. It can be done. And it's not done by the externals. You are valuable to God as you are. Make yourself beautiful from the inside out. This is where you spend your currency. Ladies, if you spend your currency on the externals... That is a perishable, monetary, perishable value. But the imperishable is the beauty of the heart. What is not perishable is the attractive, gentle, and quiet spirit. He goes on to say in verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. Ooh, that grates against you, doesn't it? By submitting to their own husbands. As, if you think that's bad, read the next verse. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him what? Lord. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> so you come over to my house, and everybody calls me Lord in the house. It's a most amazing, it's a godly thing. No, it's a, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The point is not that. The point is that Sarah got a hold of this concept and put it into play, and she had a relationship with Abraham that was spectacular. And here's why. It's not because Abraham was spectacular, because he was a bit of a moron. 
Abraham took this woman away from her hometown. She was likely a princess in her hometown, which is what Sarah means, a princess of the land. She had some sort of value in her land. Abraham shows up, takes her out of her land to a place only God knows, tells her, God visited me and God told me we've got to go to a place that only he knows about. And she follows in faith. And when she gets down there, Abraham runs into some problems. He runs into these two kings. Kings in those days, in those days, in Abraham's day, could take any woman they want and do whatever they wanted. They add them to their harem. They could do whatever they wanted to them. If you're in their land, they get your property, and the woman was a property. So Abraham comes up with, and if they're married, the king gets to kill the husband and then take the woman. So Abraham comes up with a brilliant idea. He says, Sarah, now we're going to go through some dangerous territory. If we get stopped by the police, king, if we get stopped, just tell everybody, you're my sister. Okay, whatever you want, Abraham. So they go into the land. Twice this happened. They go into these dangerous lands. King shows up. Yeah, they get stopped on the the highway. They show up. They say, oh, this is a good-looking woman. She needs to go to the king. Who's this guy with you? And Sarah says, oh, he's my brother. Because if she says he's my husband, he's dead. So she says, oh, he's my brother. So Abraham can't do anything. Oh, okay, you take my wife. So she goes. She joins the harem of the king. Twice this happened. You'd think he'd learn after the first time. Both times God protects Sarah. Both times God visits the king and says, don't lay a hand on Sarah, I'll kill you. The king's going, I can't believe this is happening. Goes to Abraham, reams Abraham out. Why in the world did you tell me she's your sister? She's your wife. I can't do this thing when she's your... Get out of my country. Doesn't kill Abraham. Gives him a sack of gold. Begs him to leave the land. Both times. God protects Sarah. Then, God shows up. Abraham is not, until the end of his life, he exhibits very small faith. At the end of his life, well, when he's in his 90s and Sarah's in her 80s, God visits Abraham and says, you're going to have a son. Abraham going, oh, okay, well, going to have a son. Finally, no children. Sarah's barren. So he goes to Sarah, says, Sarah, we're going to have a son. Sarah, what does she do? She she laughs. She laughs. She says, how can this thing be? Abraham says, God said it. We're going to believe it. She says, I'm 80. How can I have a son? That doesn't, that's not normal. Abraham says, God said it. We're going to believe it. And Sarah says, then because you believe it, Abraham, even though you've been a really poor example of a husband to me, because you believe it, I'll believe it too. And then out of some irony, and I don't think it's out of rebellion, but out of irony, she, has, she gets pregnant, she has the son, and she names the son Laughter. Yitzhak, Isaac. And I think it's because it's a constant reminder to her that in her obedience and submission to Abraham, even though he is a poor example of a husband, God still rewards her. So Peter's sitting there thinking through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what example can I give people to help them understand what it means to submit even when your husband doesn't truly follow God? Sarah. And he says, if you want an example of a woman that didn't have all the pieces that wandered in the desert, that wandered around looking for a place because her husband believed in the thing and kept making bad decisions, but she kept following out of her obedience to God and her faith in God that grew over time, remember Sarah. Incredible story. 
Abraham and Sarah were old, and yet both of them exhibited faith. And then Peter says, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Ladies, what God calls you to do is a frightening thing. It goes against instinct and it goes against culture. It's like a salmon swimming upstream. And so follow Sarah and do not fear anything that is frightening. She might have been fearful of what, were ha- what was happening, but she never stopped growing in her faith. And it reminds me of the Proverbs 31 passage where it talks about a godly woman. I love this verse in Proverbs 31:25. Strength and dignity for a godly woman. Strength and dignity are in her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. Why? Because her faith is in God. And regardless of what her instinct tells her to do, regardless of what culture tells her to do, dump the guy, he's not worth it. She submits to Abraham, she submits to God, and she swims against the current. High calling, right? Man, do you think you're off the hook? Yours is verse 7. And it starts with the great word again, likewise. We're still talking about submission. Likewise. A weighty word. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's all you get, guys. 37 words. Ladies, we just read 136 words for you. Guys, you get 37. Do you want to know why? Guys can't handle more than 37 words. Just tell me, tell me the base. I, I don't, that's all I can handle. So, men. Women may be driven to win men with their bodies. That is natural. Instinct, culture supports that. Men, you are driven to win your woman with your strength. It's innate in you. You come out of the womb this way because every little kid goes around trying to establish his superiority in the classroom with his little little girlfriends by lifting stuff over his head, right? And throwing stuff around the room. I want to show you how strong I am. That is instinct. That is culture. And God says men... I know this this blows me away. God says men swim against culture, swim against influence. And swim against that idea because the way you win your wife, the way you win your woman, is through tenderness. He says, submit this to God. That's why we're using likewise. Men win with tenderness. Women are spiritually driven to spiritually thrive when they are loved. And men, we have to love our wives. Women win with a gentle and quiet spirit. Men are designed spiritually to thrive when they are respected. And the only way you win the respect of your woman, of your wife, is when you are submissive to be tender. If you're married, that feels like swimming upstream. But men, I would simply say this. Do you want to win or do you want to win them? You may win an argument. You may establish your strength. You may establish your superiority of intellect. Whatever it is you're shooting for, you may walk away and think to yourself, I won that battle, but you didn't win them. And the way you win your wives, the way you win the gift that God has given to you and your spouse, men, is by being tender to their needs. I know it's swimming upstream. In this day, women were seen as property 
that men owned. Like they own a dog, or they own a cow, or they own a sheep, or they own their house. What, what owner would ever care to learn his cow's feelings? Nobody. That's just dumb. They're your property. You can pet them one day and eat them the next. They belong to you. God is saying in this culture, to this culture where women were seen as men's property, He's saying fight against that. They are not your property. They are heirs with you in the glory to come. They are equal value to you. What master cares to understand his own property? It's his property. And the first thing that Peter says is, men, live with your wives in an understanding way. This is key. This is not understanding like I just have to endure their complexity. That's not understanding. Understanding is an effort to get to know them personally. An effort to, to, to know to listen to their questions at the end of the day, to want to know what happened to their lives. I know, it goes against everything in us, right? Just give me the facts, I want to watch my television. But it, it's, it's more than that. It's understanding what they're going through. It's, it's research of your wife. And it never stops. So men, have you given up researching your wife? Don't give up. The patterns of dating need to continue all the way through marriage. And then there's more here. Showing honor. That's tamao. The Greek word it doesn't mean anything to you other than this is lowering yourself so that you can boost something else above your head. That means that, men, you are to lower yourself so that the woman can be more important than you. And then he says, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. In other words, they are not your property. They are equal in value to you. An understood woman is a cherished woman, a woman who will comfortably live with and respect her man. And finally, men, what is affected if you don't go this route? Did you read the end of the verse? What is affected if you don't go this route, church? Men, what does God stop listening to? Your prayers. This is a serious thing. And it's to be taken serious. And if you're counseling anyone before they're married, you've got to give them this spiel. Because if they treat their wives as property or less than themselves, or they devalue them, or they stop researching them, the thing that happens next is God stops listening to them, to their prayers. That's a big deal. Your prayers are hindered when your relationship with your spouse is hindered. Why? Because it's God's institution. And he's really interested in you making it the best institution it can be. That alone should be enough to jolt us men into submission to follow God's pattern for living. Now, there's a lot of stuff we didn't cover. And so I just want to cover these really, really quick, all right? Questions we don't have time to answer because this is such a complex situation in our culture. Complex uh, institution of marriage. Does submission always look the same? The, the experience of submission looks a little different from culture to culture, but the heart of submission never changes. You've got to be willing to submit in every culture. It may look different from, from you know, continent to continent, but the heart of submission always should be there. Can a wife be the spiritual leader of the household? This text doesn't talk about that at all. Right? So you can't go to this text to answer that question. But the simple answer is sometimes yes. 
There's other passages that back that up. 1 Corinthians, 6, for instance, or 1 Corinthians 7 talks about how a woman can win holiness in her household just by the way that she lives. So the woman definitely can be a leader in the household, but the man is called to that job before God if you're married. Question number three, so am I just a doormat? Well, you haven't been listening, all right? Are you a doormat? Absolutely not. That's not the point. That has nothing to do with any of this. No, you're not a doormat. Does this mean I do whatever he says? Refer to the former question. No, that doesn't mean you do everything that the guy says. Or men, not everything that the woman says. What if submission makes my heart, my life harder at first? Shazam, it's going to. That, that's just what's going to happen. If you submit to somebody else, your life will get harder. But here's the promise. You may lose the battle, but you'll win them. So what are you in it to win? The battle or the person? Does this mean that, I should, that she should do whatever I say? Again, no. We haven't been listening if that's still on your mind, all right? Should Christians even use the word submission outside of the church? Probably not. And it breaks my heart to say that. Because submission outside the church is massively misunderstood. But inside the church, we all understand it. And the reason we do is because Christ submitted to us. And we have a reference point. He washed the feet of the betrayer. That's pretty good submission stuff, don't you think? And so we can understand submission because we've had a visual. And it hits us right here. So let me tell you a few things before I leave you here this morning. Number one, actually, it's all the same. I have three final points, and they're all the same. The, the power is in the pattern. Could you say that with me? Because it's really, it's a powerful phrase. The power is in the pattern. Let's talk about what that means. The power is in the pattern. Pattern means structure. This means what God established from the beginning of time, however long that was ago, whatever date you put on that, will work all throughout time. If God invented the thing, God says how it runs. Right? If I make a lawnmower and fill it up with milk, it's not going to run very long. Because whoever invented the lawnmower said, let's use gasoline in there. I don't get to pour something else in there that's not going to make that thing work. I've got to learn to use gasoline because that's how a mower is meant to work. Who invented marriage? God did. So God gets to say how it works. And that's how marriage works. Husbands, that means that you are the spiritual health, responsible for the spiritual health of your wife. There's a passage in Ephesians 5. I just got to tell you this one. Jesus Christ, it, 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 it relates how we love our wives to how Jesus loves the church. And Paul says in Ephesians 5.27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, Jesus lives for one purpose, to make the, the church, his bride, appear before the Father spotless, holy, absolutely wrinkle-free, you know, pure. And then he says in verse 28, in the same way, in other words, insert the word likewise, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, husbands, I'm here to tell you, our job as husbands is to present our wives spotless to God. 
My job as a husband is to make sure on the day I'm called to reckoning, I present a woman that I have not put obstacles in front of to grow spiritually, but I have paved the path for her to love God more in the way that I have loved her. That is, my, that is our men, our responsibility. Ladies, the pattern of living for you is to develop a gentle spirit that is meant by God to be your greatest strength. That's the pattern. Live out those patterns. Point number two, the power is in the pattern. <laughs> Let's look at the word in. This is repetitive actions. The power is in the pattern. You may be sitting here thinking to yourself, Craig, I have tried this stuff before and it does not work for me. Ah, the power is in the pattern. Keep trying. It's not a one-off. It's a lifestyle. You have to, you have to live this like you believe it. There's a lady in my life, I love her to death. She has an unbelieving husband and she loves Jesus like few people I know. Her husband is not obstinate. He loves her. They have a good relationship, but he will not surrender to Jesus Christ. I've sat with him before, looked at him in the face. He said, Craig, I'm not trying to be obstinate. I just don't believe it. And I said, that's okay. That's okay. I'll pray for you. We'll pray that God breaks through. But her attitude toward her husband is to love him like Jesus loves him in some pretty powerful ways, to be a gentle and beautiful spirit from the inside out. And they're getting older and he got cancer and he still won't bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And she talks to me and she says, Craig, it's going to be someday. Someday it'll happen. I said, keep it up. Keep it up. The power is in repetitive actions. Live like you believe that you can win your spouse. Live it. Finally, the last point is <laughs> the same. The power is in the pattern. Power is available. Muscle power, strength is available if you live this way. Not with culture, but against it. Not with your instinct, but against it. God will give you the muscle to succeed, the power to succeed when you use his pattern. So the question is, will you submit this to God? You'll never win people with a hostile heart. That may come natural, it may, but the success rate is way lower than you could possibly imagine. So I would say, why not try it God's way? Husbands, you have the best chance to win the heart of your wife by understanding her. Wives, you have the best chance to win the heart of your husband to submit and live with a beautiful heart in front of him. After all, how did God win your heart? The sun and the wind had a bet one day. There was a guy in a parka, big fat parka, eh, much like you'd wear today. He's sitting on a park bench. The sun and the wind, they have this, this conversation. And the wind says to the sun, I'll bet you $500 I can get that guy to take his coat off. And the sun says, come on, that's stupid. We don't need to do this. You do your wind thing, I do my sun thing, we're good. And the wind says, no, 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 no. I'll bet you I can do it. I'll bet you I can do it and you can't. 500 bucks. So the sun says, okay, all right, you're on. So the wind comes out, the, fog, or the, the clouds come through. The wind starts to blow and blow. Leaves are flowing. Tumbleweeds are flying. Leaves are flying off the trees. Icicles falling from the sky. Cold, cold, cold. The wind is just blowing. And the more the wind blows, the more the guy pulls his park around himself. The wind just gets so mad. He just blows and blows. There's tornadoes. There's lightning. There's thunder. He's just blowing his guts out. And the man just keeps pulling it tighter and tighter around himself. Finally, the wind had enough. And he said, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm pooped. 
your turn. So the sun says, all right, I'll give it a go. And the clouds part, and the sun comes up, the earth warms so that that little fog comes rolling off of the fields, and the man just gently takes off his coat. Everything in us may say, we will win if we bluster and blow. We will win if we follow culture, if we follow our natural instinct. And God says, listen, you've got to fight against that because the way you win is by following my path. Men, tenderness. Ladies, a gentle and quiet spirit. And you watch your husband melt. You watch your wife melt in front of you. I know, it goes against everything in us, doesn't it? No, I've got to establish my way. <laughs> he won't hear me if I don't say it 12 times. He heard you the first time. Wives, submit this to God and watch His power become available to you to fix those husband issues. Husbands, submit to God in this. Watch His power unleashed in your relationship. You may feel like a salmon swimming upstream when you compare yourself to popular culture, but in our obedience, there is power. There is power promised to succeed. And the power is available in the pattern of living for the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to the end of this passage of Scripture that, oh, can so easily be misunderstood, so easily be abused. And yet, when we pick it apart like this and dig in, the underlying theme is always the same. You are pleased when we are submissive to you first and then to one another. So, Father, may we be a generation in the church that lives and fights against culture, May we not surrender and run. May we surrender to you and win. I pray that we would understand as men how to treat our wives with great honor and incredible value, to lift them above ourselves, to submit ourselves to them, and to learn to live with them in an understanding way, in a way that seeks to know them better and researches their hearts until we die. In this way, Father, may we have marriages that blow the world out of the water. May the world look to us to see the kinds of husbands that win their wives. May we be a church filled with wives that surrender their husband, no matter how much of a challenge they may be at time. May we surrender to them because, Lord, you have called us to surrender to you. May we follow your pattern for living and realize the power that is in there. And Father, may you help ladies win in their relationships with their husbands. May you create godly homes so that our children can see patterns that they can follow themselves. And in doing so, Father, may you fill this earth with your glory through your people who surrender to you first challenging passage that gives us a lot to think about. Now may we be brave enough to follow. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.